Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code WELCOME to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code WELCOME at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code WELCOME. Rhett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So we've probably all seen instances on the news or even in our own lives where we've seen rules and regulations enforced that just didn't make any sense for a particular situation. And what's funny and tragic at the same time is that the people enforcing these rules and regulations in particular situations will tell themselves and even to other people, like, this doesn't make any sense, but I have to do it because that's what the rules say. My hands are tied. And you probably see this in your own life. Uh, You see this in bureaucracies, school systems, probably in large corporations. You probably work at a job where your company has just a weird rule that just doesn't make any sense, but you have to abide by it because uh, that's what the rule is or you'll get fired. Anyways, my guest today on the podcast uh, co-authored a book where they make the case that we've let rules and regulations swallow our lives. And this has resulted in us losing the ability to use wisdom. His name is Barry Schwartz. He's the co-author of the book, Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing. And he discusses uh, what's happened in the past, I mean, really this past 75 years, where rules and regulations uh, have enveloped our lives, the ill effects of that. And then he makes the case that we need to go back to what Aristotle championed as as the way to make decisions in our, in our life. And that is using what he called phronesis, or roughly translated to practical wisdom. So today on the podcast, we're going to discuss what practical wisdom is, how we can nurture it in our own lives and the lives of our children, and why this would be beneficial to us personally and to us as a society as a whole. Really fascinating discussion. We get into some great psychology and philosophy. So without further ado, Barry Schwartz, Practical Wisdom. Barry Shorts, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, so your book you wrote along with Kenneth Sharp a few years ago is called Practical Wisdom, and it's about how to confront problems or how to solve problems or make decisions. We'll get into exactly what practical wisdom is in a bit, but before we do that, let's talk about how people, societies, uh, particularly modern bureaucratic societies, how do we go about solving problems and making improvements and why, how come sometimes these tools that we use don't work? Well, I think we have increasingly uh, come to rely on a model where decision-making is basically done by rules. Experts of some kind, 
self-appointed or otherwise, come up with a set of procedures, a set of rules that everyone is supposed to follow to make decisions, to make judgments. And then you basically bring people on and their task is to follow the rules. Uh, this is a reflection of a lack of confidence in the judgment of the people who, who you're giving the rules to. So I'm an expert. I make rules. I hand them to you. You don't need to be an expert. You just follow the rules I created. And I think we've come to rely more and more, more and more on that, partly because if you let people use their judgment and they have bad judgment, they'll screw up. Partly, I think, to protect against favoritism and bias. If you treat every situation exactly the same way, you can't be accused of being biased. So imagine a school teacher who has to follow a script in teaching her second grade class. Uh, the virtue of following a script is that she can't be accused by some parent of, uh, of liking this student more than that student, of giving this student extra attention compared to that student. So she retreats behind the fact that she follows exactly the same procedure with everyone, so she can't be accused of bias or favoritism. So I think that's increasingly the way we do things. Uh, and the problem with it is that life is complicated, especially life that involves interaction with other human beings. And there really is no one-size-fits-all set of rules or procedures that works. So what happens when you follow rules is that you kind of get the mediocre solution to every problem, never the best solution. It's an insurance policy against a disaster in case you use your judgment and your judgment, judgment is bad, but it also pretty much guarantees that you'll never get it exactly right. Uh, and I think really think that that's, uh, that that's a pity. Um, uh, you, we need to appreciate that basically every situation is importantly different from the ones we've had experience with before. And we need to use our judgment to see whether to bend the rules, how to bend the rules, whether to ignore the rules and stuff like that. Can you point to specific examples where uh, perhaps administrative rules or stringent laws uh, have gotten in the way of actually created you know, mediocre results? Well, I mean, I think we're now seeing this played out a lot in the press. The uh, draconian policies we have for incarcerating uh, nonviolent criminals, typically drug for drug offenses, um, was a disaster. You know, everybody... Uh, you, you, you have a certain amount of weight and you have to go to jail for a certain amount of time. And if it's your third offense, they basically lock you up and they throw away the key. Uh, sometimes this is an appropriate penalty. Sometimes it's ridiculous. And, uh, and I think the reason this was imposed is that there was a sense that judges were soft on criminals and they were going to make it so that judges couldn't be soft on criminals because they had these guidelines that they had to follow. Um, the only reason we're starting now to abandon this is that we've, you know, like half the citizens of the United States are in jail. We've got, we've got the worst prison population in the entire world. Yeah, so, and it's decimated and the African-American community. It's decimated the African-American community. It's decimated state budgets. You know, it costs three times as much to incarcerate somebody as it does to educate somebody. It's just, it's just uh, uh, ridiculous. So there are these cases, uh, examples, for, we write about it in the book, of drug courts where you come before a judge specifically with drug offenses and the, dr and the judge's set of possible um, 
decisions have as much to do with rehabilitation as with anything else. Do you have a job? Have you been seeing your counselor on a regular basis and stuff like that? So the rule book gets thrown away and the judge, is, it's, the judge can use his discretion about just how hard to be uh, with each uh, perpetrator. Uh, and they've had spectacular success wherever where they've been tried. It started in Buffalo. This guy just couldn't stand it. especially there were so many veterans coming before him, veterans who you know become psychological casualties of of the war in Iraq, uh, and he just couldn't bear locking them up. So he decided we got to do things differently, and it transformed um, the way in which these kinds of cases are handled. Uh, but you know this is the sort of thing it takes courage to introduce in your jurisdiction. Um, and, and by the way, if the judge didn't have good judgment, this would not be a good program. But he does have good judgment. Yeah, a lot of judges have complained that, they have, that these uh, strict rules are basically taking the judgment out of judging. Uh, so that's one example. Yeah, and I think another example would be uh, people often complain about like zero, pol- zero tolerance policy at, at schools. Um, I guess they've been shown like if a kid draws a gruesome war picture um, – Sometimes get suspended. Yeah, yeah, and I, the one now, ki- you know, but here's the thing, you know, what, some of these kids, a small number of them, when they do something like this, it's kind of maybe it's a sign that there is some serious aggression lurking within them. So you need you really need to clamp it down. So if you decide to use your judgment and you missed some kid, and the next thing you know, he's pulling out an automatic weapon and mowing people down. You know, that's a catastrophe. So what do you decide to do? Um, we're never going to let that happen again. And you uh, impose more rules to make sure you catch every potential, um, uh, you know, serial killer. Um, and you may catch every potential serial killer, but, not, but 9 or 99 out of 1,000 kids who are doing these horrific drawings are never going to be serial killers. Yeah. And I think there's one case that you brought up I thought was – sort of funny, but also really sad, is about the uh, dad who gave his kid uh, Mike's Hard Lemonade yeah. at a ballpark. Uh, uh, can, you, can you tell that story? Well, yeah. I mean, I read this in uh, actually in the, in the New York Times. Um, this guy was a professor at the University of Michigan, and he took his, I think, seven or eight-year-old boy to a Detroit Tiger baseball game, and the kid wanted lemonade. So dad went up and got it, and the only lemonade they had was Mike's Hard Lemonade, and his father had no idea that what hard lemonade was. So the kid is drinking it out of the container, and a, a security guard sees it and immediately calls the police and an ambulance. They rush the kid to the hospital. He's fine. Uh, they're all set to release the kid and, to his dad, and the police won't let them. And they put the kid in a foster home, and they made the dad come before a magistrate because this was an example of child abuse. Now, or child neglect, uh, the judge, when he made this decision, said, I hate to do it, but we have to follow procedure. The cops, when they brought him to the judge, said, we hate to do it, but we have to follow procedure. Finally, they let the kid go home, but only if the dad leaves the house and checks into a hotel for two weeks, you know, protecting the child from his father. We hate to do it, but we have to follow procedure. It was ludicrous. Uh, And everyone knew it was ludicrous, even as they were doing it. I mean, eventually, you know, two weeks of disruption of a family and everything ended up okay. 
but the process that got you there was just um, was was a pr- preposterous example of the overapplication of rules. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like something from like a Camus novel. I mean, it was just like just bizarre. Everyone knew it was oh, bizarre. So- <laughs> and, and the weird thing about it is that everyone involved knew it was bizarre, even as they kept on doing it. Wow. Okay. They so- all knew that the rules did not apply, were not meant to apply to a case like this, but they, they followed the rules they nonetheless. Had, they had to do and it. You know, when I talk about this, um, when I give talks about this topic, I point out to people it's easy to snicker. But, you know, in Philadelphia, where I live, once uh, every couple of years, there's a story that appears in the newspaper about this kid who has been unbelievably neglected. You know, 14 years old, weighs 75 pounds. And somehow the family was, was on the radar of the social welfare uh, organizations. And nonetheless, these uh, case officers had allowed this abuse to persist. And, you know, so there's a lot of hand-wringing and, and a, a commitment that we can never let this happen again. So there are cases where uh, people in positions of authority have extremely bad judgment or indifference. And because there aren't strict rules for them to follow, they don't do their jobs and bad things happen. But the solution to that is not more rules. The solution to that is better people uh, as case officers. Okay, so the solution to that, yeah, is developing uh, what Aristotle called phronesis, right. um, but it's translated as practical wisdom. Uh, right. In a nutshell, what is phronesis or practical wisdom? Well, it's not so easy to say what it is in a nutshell. What he thought it was is the ability to do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reason. And the important point is that he was contrasting his uh, understanding of wisdom with his teacher Plato's. Plato was interested in wisdom also, but for Plato, it was abstract. So, you know, wise people had these great thoughts about um, uh, universal generalities of of the world and human beings. And Aristotle was much less interested in that than he was in how we go about making our practical day-to-day decisions. and whereas Plato was looking for abstract universals, Aristotle was interested in the particularities. So what some people say is uh, he thought there was priority to the particular. Every situation is different. Every person is different. People who have had experience dealing with certain kinds of situations learn how to read the situation. They're perceptive. They can empathize with the people they're dealing with. And they find the right uh, step to take, the right solution to this particular problem without regard to what the universal generalization is, of which this is an instance. So it was really rooted in the practical. Aristotle was a a careful observer of the tradespeople in ancient Greece and marveled at their ability to find practical solutions to particular problems. and he thought the same sort of thing, you know, was needed when you, when the problems you faced involved human beings rather than um, building materials. Say. So yeah, I love that analogy that Aristotle made that uh, becoming a good person, living a flourishing life, is you sort of have to become a craftsman in a lot right. of ways. But how does uh, phronesis tie in with his virtue ethics? Like, how does Aristotle's conception of ethics or virtue guide? how you use practical wisdom as a tool? Well, that, that's a great question. And uh, Ken Sharp and I make, make uh, a point of suggesting 
that he thought that, that practical wisdom was in some ways the master virtue. You're right, Aristotle was a virtue theorist, which meant that moral people are not people who follow moral rules. There are people who have virtues, courage, humility, honesty, and stuff like that. And to be a virtuous person is to have, to be a moral person is to have these virtues. But also, famously, Aristotle thought that courage is a virtue, but you can have too much courage. Honesty is a virtue, but you can have too much honesty. So the trick is to have the right amount of courage. When somebody have, has too much courage, we call it recklessness. When somebody has too little courage, we call it cowardice. So you need to find what Aristotle called the mean, which is just the right amount of courage. What helps you do that? Wisdom is what helps you find the mean. In addition, sometimes virtues conflict. Um, you know, kindness is a virtue. Honesty is a virtue. So what do you do when your friend, um, we actually use this, this particular example in a, in a class that we teach. Your friend calls you to come over and, and uh, take a look at her before she goes to this fancy wedding. She's all dressed up and you go and she opens the door and she does a little pirouette and says, how do I look? And you think, not so good. <laughs> and the question is, what do you tell her? And when we give this example to students, their immediate reaction is to tell the truth. Friendship is based on honesty. If you can't count on your friends to be honest, they're not your friends. But the more we unpack it, the more they come to see that maybe that's not the right thing to do. That telling the truth is right if you think your friend has a reasonable alternative, if you think your friend won't be shattered to discover that even though she thinks she look, looks great, other people don't. She knows she'll never trust her own judgment again. So sometimes what you need to do is tell the noble lie. And knowing when to tell the truth and when to tell a lie requires that you know your friend and know your friend extremely well. So, so, so wisdom is what enables us to resolve conflicts between virtues uh, and find the mean amount of any particular virtue. So we regard it as the, as the master virtue. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. 
With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the K household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time. Uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. So how do you go about uh, developing that wisdom? Because there's a lot going on yep. when you're making that decision. So you were calculating how your, how your friend would respond uh, you know, what is in this situation, like, how do you figure out or develop that ability to know what the right thing to do is the right time for the right reason, the right place? Well, the, that's a, another great question. And, and, you know, there's a sense in which this could, could take you a day to figure out what, how to answer your friend. <laughs> you, know, you sit down, you create a spreadsheet with all the factors, how much confidence does she have? What's her wardrobe look like? Blah, blah, blah. And she says, how do I look? And you say, well, give me a day and I'll let you know. Obviously, that 
that's not going to fly. So you're going to have to come up with an answer, and you're going to have to come up with an answer quickly. And one of the one of the interesting developments in modern cognitive psychology is the sort of model, uh, kind of computational models of mind, where we build up with experience these networks of associations that enable us to come to conclusions extremely quickly and intuitively, although we don't necessarily know how we reach them. So what we suggest in the book is that um, the way you get to make these judgments right is by, having, is by practice. You're crappy at it at the beginning, and you keep on having these experiences. You make a try. You get it wrong. You learn from your mistake. Your, your um, cognitive machinery gets smarter and smarter, and eventually you're making these rapid decisions that are most of the time the right decision. There's no substitute, we think, for experience. Um, you, can't, you can't give a course on how to be wise and expect that at the end of the course people will be wise. You learn it by doing it. Often you learn it by watching other experienced people do it and learning from them. Uh, but there's no substitute for actually making the decisions, getting feedback, and refining your ability to read situations. So, I mean, are there some big picture cognitive or emotional skills that are involved in wisdom, like uh, being comfortable with ambiguity or nuance? Or, I mean, is something you can something you can do to put yourself in a position where you can develop that ability to well, judge shades of gray? It certainly helps to be uh, tolerant of ambiguity, if not comfortable. Because if you're not tolerant of ambiguity, you will think that either there, you'll either think there's a rule for every situation or you'll think I need a rule for every situation <laughs> because I can't bear the uncertainty. I, you know, I don't mind being wrong as long as I'm wrong because I followed a rule that somebody else articulated. And if I'm wrong, it's his fault. It's not my fault. So there are people who can't tolerate ambiguity. They want there to be a right answer. They want it to be clear and unambiguous. Um, and you know, for the, all I can say for those people is kind of get a life. That's not the way the world is. And I think people know this in their everyday interactions. I don't, I think there are very few parents, for example, who think that the right way to raise their kids is by following a set of rules. They may start out thinking that, you know, they read all these books that tell them how to be a good parent. And they say, well, we're just going to let our kid cry herself to sleep at night because that's what you're supposed to do and so on and so on and so on, all these rules. And their kids teach them, basically, that rules won't do the job. Their kids teach them because they apply the rules and the rules don't work. Uh, and having figured out how to raise the first kid, along comes the second and all of a sudden a completely different person. So all the things that work with the first kid don't work with the second kid. So you, your kids force you to appreciate that the way you manage child rearing is by really knowing your child, appreciating that, that person's individuality, and crafting solutions to problems that are appropriate to the situation and to the, to the person. And I think good teachers know this about the kids in their classrooms. You treat every kid the same, you're going to be a terrible teacher. Kids need different things. And your job is to figure out what each kid needs and then find a way to provide it insofar as that's possible. Um, so I think experience teaches us the limits of rules, but at the same time, when we're in sort of official situations, we want to be able to fall back on rules because it takes the pressure off us. Yeah, that, the comment about how every kid is different, and good teachers know this, there's been a lot of uh, 
commentary and comments from teachers lately about some of the top-down standards that states yeah. are putting on teachers, and it's sort of hamstringing teachers. Like they want to be a good teacher, but they can't because they get get their students ready for this test. No, no, it's exactly now. There are two things going on there. One of them is this focus on the test as the measure of all things, uh, and you know, there's enough. There's been enough ink spilt on that. I don't need to belabor sure. the point. Um, but even aside from that, um, by giving teachers scripts to follow, they are de-skilling teaching. And that's going to have two effects. It's, I, it's going to prevent teachers from developing wisdom because the way you get wisdom is by do, varying what you do and learning from your mistakes. If all you're doing is following a script, you're not going to be any better a teacher after 30 years as you were the day you started. Uh, or it's going to drive wise teachers out of teaching. You know, I came into teaching full of ambition to stimulate and excite young minds and find a way into the heart and mind of every single second grader. They won't let me do that. The hell, I'll find another occupation. So, and I think that's what school systems are doing. They're driving the best teachers out of teaching because the things that attracted them to teaching aren't available. Speaking of children, are there things, I know a lot of our listeners are parents, they're dads. Um, are there things that we can do to help our children develop phronesis? Well, the main thing, I think, is to let them, there's a, there's a wonderful book written by a psychologist named Wendy Mogul called The Blessings of a Skinned Knee. And her point, and this book was written 15 years ago, even before the word helicopter parent had come into existence, uh, her point was that parents are too preoccupied with protecting their kids from every little mishap, every skinned knee. It could be psychological skinned knee. They don't want their kids to ever be disappointed, to ever be unhappy, to ever hurt themselves. So they hover and make sure that mistakes never happen. And I think that, you know, the, the kids will be, um, will have fewer moments of unhappiness but they will be completely unprepared for living in the world as independent adults. And they'll never have the opportunity to develop wisdom because they never get to try things and discover that some things don't work. So you have to be willing to let your kid fail. Um, you know, when you're training a medical resident, you have to be willing to let the resident make decisions and sometimes have those decisions be wrong. It's just that, you know, in life and death situations, the doctor is hovering so that after the resident has made the mistake, the doctor corrects it before we have a dead patient. So, you know, skin knees are a blessing. Drowned, drowned kids are not a blessing. So you want parents to be around to make sure that nothing terrible happens, but not so around so that, he, so that nothing even mildly bad happens. It's very hard to convince parents that it's okay for their kids to experience a little bit of uh, failure and unhappiness. Um, it also builds resilience in kids. You know, failure is inevitable. And if you have no experience failing at things, being disappointed, and then picking yourself up and trying again, when it finally comes, say in college, you just, you just disintegrate. And, I, and we see that, I think, more and more in our college population. The college students are much more fragile nowadays than they were when I started teaching. And I think part of the reason why is they've been so well protected 
before they get to college that they don't know what it's like to fail. All right. So let, let your kids experience failure because yes. experience is the, the master teacher. Experience is the master, but you know, experience with control. Sure. You want, you, you want the failures to be manageable failures, not catastrophic. <laughs> the other thing is, is by modeling. We learn a lot by watching other people. So, you know, if you're a wise person or a wise parent, that helps you to cultivate a wise child. Let your kids in on the process. Let them see you. Don't do it behind a screen. Don't do your decision making behind the screen. Um, talk to them about the process you went through and deciding how to handle the situation. And that may help also. But it's a bump. It's a, it's a long, bumpy road. Um, and uh, you just have to be willing to occasionally experience failure yourself as a parent, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Don't beat yourself up. Um, are there any, I mean, you mentioned the uh, sort of the, we're giving judges more discretion now with the drug cases. Are there any other examples where you're seeing practical wisdom making a comeback into institutions? We saw examples that were kind of outlier examples. There's a program for training medical students that's affiliated with Harvard, where instead of doing the usual third and fourth year rotations from one specialty to another, the third year med students get a panel of patients and they see those patients all year. Whatever the patient, whatever problem the patients have, they come in and the students deal with them with experienced physicians looking over their shoulders. And so what that does is it, it, it encourages doctors in training to appreciate that they're not treating organ systems, they're treating people. Because they've seen this person again and again, and they know this person doesn't have just the problem that they're bringing in today, but the problems that they brought in a week or a month ago. And they know something about the person's family situation and what kind of a recommendation is a feasible recommendation for this patient to be able to follow. Uh, the students love it. They uh, turn, out, turn into spectacular doctors. But this has not spread. You know, this is, a, this is a wonderful little anomaly. And it may be that it doesn't spread because it's too expensive it's more expensive to do the educating this way. There are, there are, in law schools, the part of law school that most law students like the best is something called the legal clinic, which is where you actually, you know, people from the community come in with their problems, problems with a landlord, with an employer, mundane problems or not so mundane problems, and you get training in the law by helping real people solve real problems. Students love it faculty are con sort of contemptuous of it. It's not academic enough. So the legal clinic is usually taught by somebody who's not a regular member of the law school faculty, you know, some practicing lawyer who once a week comes in and runs the clinic. But what the students learn, I think, is that legal issues always have context attached and that you can't be a good lawyer just by knowing the law. You need to know the context, you need to know the principles. And the way you do that is by dealing with real cases and not with textbook cases. So those are examples. Uh, you know, if the legal clinic became a central part of law school instead of a peripheral one, that would uh, almost certainly create wiser lawyers. Interesting. Yeah, I, I went to law school and uh, yeah, we had a legal clinic. And you're right. It wasn't taught by a regular faculty member. It was just a person who came in once or it, twice a it week. It almost never is. And the more prestigious the law school 
the more likely it is that the legal clinic, if they have it at all, will be taught by an outsider. And there, I, there is sort of a movement in law school, and I don't know if it's going to take, uh, it has any legs, but basically your first year of law school, you first two years, maybe you learn all the basics, like torch law, contracts, all the basics. And then after that, you sort of take these semester long classes that are more like seminars. Yeah. Um, but there's a movement saying that, okay, instead of spending those two years doing these seminar classes, just get the kids out there or the students out there actually practicing law under yep. the guidance of a teacher. But I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the law, legal education is really on, in crisis right now because their job opportunities for lawyers are so bad. And you have all these people getting out of law school with massive debt. So there's talk about can we do it in two years rather than three uh, so so students are not in as big a hole when they finish and stuff like that. And there are many fewer applicants. So there are, you know, second tier law schools are not always able to fill up their classes. It's a major problem. And one possible approach. So this may be an opportunity. It may be an opportunity and, uh, you know, produced by economic uh, exigencies to get law schools to rethink how they do their educating and it may turn out, as you say, that what ends up happening is one grueling year in the classroom, and then the next couple of years are basically spent as an intern at the feet of a, an experienced practitioner. It'd be less expensive to do and more satisfying to the students, and my guess is it'll produce much better lawyers. Well, that's, that's funny. That's how they used to do legal education, like in the 19th century, like you read the law, like Abraham Lincoln did. Yep. And then you went and you found an attorney to be your mentor. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a few states like Vermont still has that program. So you don't actually have to go to law school in Vermont. Uh, you can intern at a law firm for three yep. or four years and uh, you have a law degree and you take the bar exam. Yeah, yeah. The, I think this, I don't know this for a fact, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if the for, increasing formalization of legal education is uh, a, an attempt to attain higher status. You know, you go to medical school for four years. The idea that you can become a lawyer after one year, what does that say about the relative status of training in law versus training in medicine? So you beef it up to make it feel like there's this magic secret stuff that people learn when they go to law school, and it takes them three grueling years to learn it. Um, most of the law people I know who've gone to law school basically say the, the only year that's really essential for their training is the first. And after that, yeah. they just take classes they're interested in. And it's fine. You know, they're happy. They enjoy it and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, after the first year, all of it's gravy. Yeah, yeah that was my experience, too. Well, uh, Barry Schwartz, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You asked wonderful questions, Brett. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our guest today was Barry Schwartz. He's the author of the book, Practical Wisdom, and you can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, really help uh, get the word out about the show and also give us some feedback on how we can improve it. Really appreciate it. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.